Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. This episode is brought to you by Mural, a digital workspace for visual collaboration. At Voltage Control, we use Mural to facilitate engaging and productive meetings and workshops from anywhere. Mural gives teams the means, methods, and freedom to collaborate visually. Use their suite of facilitation superpowers to control the virtual room and solve tough problems as a team with their pre-built templates and guided methods. To see for yourself why companies like IBM, Atlassian, and E-Trade rely on Mural, start your 30-day trial at mural.co. That's M-U-R-A-L dot C-O. Today, I'm with David Gertin, Director of Gertin Knowledge, where he works in the fields of knowledge management, organizational learning, and conversational leadership. He is best known as the creator of the Gertin Knowledge Cafe, a versatile conversational process to bring a group of people together to learn from each other, share experiences, and make better sense of a rapidly changing, complex, less predictable world to improve decision-making and to innovate. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you, Douglas. It's uh, good to be here. So for starters, David, I'd love to hear how you found your way into this amazing work you're doing. Not many folks can call themselves um, conversation experts, and it's always <laughs> fun to talk to people who study conversations and think about something that is so germane to every interaction we have throughout every day. So I'm just really curious how someone gets into this work. Yes, I, I stumbled along over many years. Uh, if we go back far enough, I started out with a degree in physics and working for an aerospace company, uh, helping engineers uh, develop software for uh, satellites, spacecraft, so aerospace. Um, but very quickly moved into software development, and I guess for most of my corporate career, you could best describe me as a software development manager. Um, but my last job in corporate life was uh, with Lotus Development. Uh, you may remember Lotus 1, 2, 3, you know, early, early spreadsheet before Excel uh, stole the market. Well, there, my, my, my final job with Lotus was, uh, I had the most amazing title. My title was International Czar. And I worked at the headquarters in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And my job was to work right across the organization to ensure that all the software products were designed for international markets. And that was a lot less technical than anything I'd done before. That was a lot more about working with people and dealing with people. And that was, uh, that was quite a challenge and uh, really a very interesting sort of formative time in my life. And then, what, about 1993, I returned to the UK and I started to work. I, I got back to, back to my techie roots. I started to work as a Lotus Notes uh, consultant and developer. So developing, um, you know, this was before the web. So this was developing collaborative applications for organizations. And all the issues I faced there were really nothing to do with the technology. The technology was the easy part of it all. The 
the real problems, the real challenges, again, with the people. It was, you, know, you, you, could, you could build a, collab a collaborative application, but if people weren't inclined to collaborate or talk to each other, then uh, things weren't going to work very well. So, I, so over that period there, maybe of about 10 years, I became very much more interested in people and started to get very interested in how people interact and, uh, and conversation. And I guess everything started to change about the year 2000, about the turn of the millennium. I, uh, I created my, my website, which is gertine.com. I started to blog, I started to publish a newsletter, so I started to get a you know, very early adopter of social media. But then interestingly, and pivotally really, 2002, September 2002, I ran my first Knowledge Cafe. We can talk a bit more about Knowledge Cafes later, but the whole idea of the Knowledge Cafe was to bring people together to have conversations about interesting, interesting topics. And th that cafe was kind of just like a side project to me, but it took over my life because I ended up running the cafes pretty much all over the world. And I learned a lot about people, a lot about culture, a lot about conversation and when people would talk or, or not talk or um, how to create a psychological safety. And I've been running those now, say, for the last 18 years. Of course, these, these last few months, I've, I've been running them online using Zoom. I discovered Zoom three years ago, long before I think really anybody had heard of it. And I, I liked Zoom because it had breakout rooms. It was very stable, very high quality. And I could actually run the knowledge cafes on the, uh, on the Zoom platform. So that's a lot of what I've been doing. But again, about five years ago, I started to... See, I'm, I'm at an age now where I don't have to work if I don't need to. I'm sort of, in, in some ways, retired. I'm, I'm still working as hard as ever, but I don't need, I don't need to earn money. So I can, I can indulge myself. I can do the things that I want to do. So what I started to do about five years, to, five years ago was write what I call a book. It's a cross between a blog and a book. It's an, on, it's an online book, if you like. And uh, my software development background has helped me develop it. And then I, sp I spend most of my time writing and developing that book. And it's on this subject of conversational leadership. And originally when I first started writing it, it was very much about the Knowledge Cafe and how to design and how to run Knowledge Cafes. And it was about other conversational processes as well. But it's, it's, it's grown and it's, it's, it's a lot more than that. Uh, it's a lot more than that today. So kind of summarizing and bring things right up to date. My focus today is my book. It's, a, it's on conversational leadership and we can talk more about that. And it's, uh, I, you know, I run a lot of knowledge cafes, but again, today they are, they are virtual rather than face-to-face. Rather than -face. And of course, I, I also run workshops where I teach people how to design and run their own knowledge cafes. Does that all make sense and kind of bring things up? Yeah, that's a rich history, and I can certainly <laughs> relate. I was a CTO for many years and launched a few startups of my own. And mm -hmm. you know, as a technical person, where I was developing software, I had to make that transition from like working in 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 the editor in the IDE to working with people. And yes. I think that yep. led me on this journey into facilitation, having to 
think about organizational health and how to bring teams to work together more efficiently. So when you're sharing your story, I certainly relate it to my journey. And I guess for the listeners, I think it'd be really interesting to unpack some of the things that you noticed as you started to make that transition around, you know, here's the binary technical stuff or the, or here's the plan that we can just construct and say it is the plan and it's a, a knowable, understandable thing. But then we have people with emergent qualities and, and things. Yes. And so what are what were some of the patterns and things you started to notice and, and maybe um, some of the early underpinnings of what became the Knowledge Cafe? Like what are some of those like f- first principles we need to consider? I think th- the one thing I clearly remember, let's just go back to my time at Lotus. So... My job was to work right across the organization to make sure that all the development teams, actually it wasn't just development teams, it was marketing and production, it was it was right across the organization to ensure that products were designed for the international market. And that was my job, and I, I, I moved to Cambridge to, to do that job. And I learned very soon, to my horror, that all the development teams, they were they were rewarded on US or North American revenue. They weren't rewarded on international revenue. So they actually had no um, incentive to do what I asked them to do. And um, I can remember going to see the VP of development who brought me out there, and he basically said, live with it, David, I'm, I'm not changing it. So I didn't have any authoritative power to get these people to you know, w- work in a way and, and create international products. And I realized very quickly the only way I could do it was through the relationships that I was building with these people. I, I, needed, to, um, I needed to make friends with them. You know, it might have been a little bit um, disingenuous doing it, but, I, but I, you know, I, I'm that sort of person anyway. You know, I, I like to make friends and work with people. So, so very early on, I used to v- visit... The, the development managers and the VPs and what have you, the various teams, and just sit down and talk with them and not actually ask them for anything. Just build the relationship. Because I knew at some point in the future, I was, I was going to come knocking on their door to ask them for something that maybe they didn't really want to do or they didn't have the time or the resources to do. And I'd experienced in the past where basically I was just told to get out. They didn't even want to talk to me. So I knew I had to just build Build that relationship. And it's just reminding me, as I say it, that there's a wonderful quotation I often use from Peter Block, where he says, connection before content. Without relationship, no work can take place. Now, I only learned that quotation a year or two ago. So in in, in retrospect, that's what I was doing. I was building building those relationships. Uh, That's what I feel is so so very important and often missing in corporate life. You know, that's amazing. And thanks for, I had heard that quote before, but I haven't thought of it in a while. And it's so appropriate because mm. we're, we're, we're going to host our facilitator conference again um, for the third time in February, the, the second through the fourth. And um, our theme this year is connection because ah, there's so much of a um, concern around the facilitation community around connection. And especially with the pandemic, a real as at the beginning of the pandemic, a real concern around, will we be able to maintain our connections? We'll be able to create the same level of connection. 
and it's certainly nuanced and more since the beginning. But I think that, uh, I think that's anyway, I really appreciate you bringing up that quote because we'll definitely um, make use of it for the conference. Yeah, I think, I think something else there which I think is a, a problem is that you know, to really make a human connection, it does need to be face to face. And again, in current circumstances, that's so much harder to do. Mm. Yes, we've got Zoom, we've got Skype, we've got, we've got Teams, so you need, we can see people, which makes it a lot easier. But there's still something missing. I can never quite put my finger on it, but you know, it's, it's not quite the same when you're not in the same room with the person. Oh, yeah, there's so many. We have more senses than just um, sight. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are pheromones, mm-hmm. there's smells, there's temperature. You know, the, yep. the temperature is going to get slightly different as you approach a person because they are emanating and there's all, heat. And there's all the body language that yes. uh, you, you can't necessarily see. Yeah, because it's being flattened. Because, you know, we're we're in Zoom, you're only seeing a certain, a little sliver of kind of what's what's happening. And it's yep. also flattened, right? The depth of field is going to be impacted yep. by the camera. Yeah, 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 yes, you're right. absolutely right. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your background in physics. And mm-hmm. I was really fascinated by this concept that, you know, physics is how we think about the study of the world, understanding the yes, world, right? Yes, yes. And yes. so, in a way, the, when you're doing this work with the conversations, it, you're applying that physics lens to something that that it's just a behavior, a thing that people do. But now you're you're providing a lens into better understanding it, which I think is what yes. physics does around about our oh, universe. Yes, absolutely. Now, look, you you really have touched on a hot button for me that uh, I very rarely get a chance to talk about. Um, my interest in physics came, actually there's a, little, there's a little story here. When I was about eight years old, my father took me into the garden on a dark winter's night and pointed out the stars to me, you know, the constellations, and he, he knew the constellations, and because uh, he'd spent the, he'd spent the war in the North African desert, so he's, he'd slept out under the stars. Mm-hmm. And, and, th- and that inspired me, you know, that, that got me interested. It got me curious about the world. So it, was, it was my father at a very young age got me interested in science. And I would have said, you know, when I was maybe 16, 17, my, my interest was in the physical universe, was, you know, what went on in the heart of a star? And of course, we've, we pretty much understand that these days, maybe not everything with uh, black holes and what have you, but you know, that's, that physical stuff is relatively straightforward. Um, but today, I would say I'm a lot more interested in what goes on in our minds. Here's something that here's something that each and every one of us owns and has got, you know, and we can explore and experiment with, um, because we you know we've got our own mind to do that with, and so we understand the star, but we don't understand our minds terribly well. We don't understand who we are, and so my curiosity in the world, my curiosity in the world, shifted from the physical world to uh, to the mental world to the social world, and so I look at things and say. You know, the thing that's driven me all my life has just been curiosity, and I guess it's like a quest, in some ways, for the truth. Um, maybe truth's not, not, not quite the right word. It's just about better understanding reality, because I don't think we've got a terribly good grasp in it right now. So the other thing that came up for me as we were chatting around, you know, the connection and maybe how zoom isn't as ideal as, as you know, creating connection in person. Yeah. What, what did you find when you were starting to, you know, 
as the pandemic started to take hold and you were having to run your knowledge cafes inside of Zoom, what were you starting mm-hmm. to notice about what are, what are some of the things you had to adapt or do to still obtain that connection? In general, what surprised me was how easy it was. You know, for a long time, people had been asking me, they were saying, David, you know, we're, we're a global distributed organization. How can we run cafes virtually? And I was basically saying to them, you can't do it. You, know, you, you can do things, but it's, it's, not quite, it's not quite a cafe in the sense that I define it. And when I realized Zoom had breakout rooms and I realized just how Zoom worked, I thought, yes, I can do this. I can actually run my cafes online. And I run the first one March 2017. So yes, three, three and a bit years ago. And I, I was quite amazed in how well they worked. And it's, it's one thing I haven't really taken the time to do, to be honest with you, is to sit down, because I really want to write it, write about it, and just compare face-to-face with virtual. Um, the one big difference for me is that in my face-to-face knowledge cafes, let's just... Let's just describe the cafe process very briefly so that you understand. So, so typically with a cafe, there's a speaker. The speaker speaks for 10 to 15 minutes on a topic, poses a question to the group in a face-to-face environment that's sitting at three to four people per table. There is no host or facilitator at the tables. Everyone's equal. They have a conversation around the topic, around the question, for say 15 minutes, and we change tables maybe three times, so they have three, three conversations. And then eventually we come back together in a circle. We just push the tables to one side of the room, form a circle with the chairs, and we have what I call a whole group conversation. I'm, I'm trying to get away from the, um, you know, the reporting back uh, paradigm that's sort of so entrenched in a lot of workshops. And I do the best I can to have a conversation in that circle. So that's how it works face-to-face. Now, the difference is when I'm online in Zoom is, yep, I can do exactly the same thing, but now I simply put people at random into breakout rooms. And now the first problem is, once they're in the breakout rooms, I'm left on my own. I don't get to listen into the conversations. Um, and I really need to stay in that, in, that, in that main room in case people drop out of their breakout rooms or, or, or people join late. I need to be there to hold the hold the fort, so to speak. Now, I could I could visit the rooms, but people told me very early on, and I felt it myself that that was just disruptive if I came and joined the room. So I've got no feeling for how the conversations are going as to whether they're kind of broadly on 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 track, um, or any feeling for the energy in the conversations. I've got to wait patiently until people come back to the main room. So that's that's one of the big one of the big differences. Um, I think also people are being put in rooms at random, whereas in the face to face situation, they get to choose to some degree who they sit with. So they can, if they want to sit with their friend, they can. If they want to avoid somebody they don't get on with, they can do that. So maybe being randomly put into breakout rooms. I guess there are pluses and minuses to that from a uh, individual perspective. And then the one thing I can't do in quite the same way, I clearly can't do the circle um, at the end. 
Mm. And so it's um, it's a little bit different in in that sense. But in many many ways, it's it's not so so dissimilar. And I get the feeling at times that when you've got say just three people in a breakout room, it's somehow a lot more focused than three people around a table because because they don't have all the distractions of everything else going on in the room. That's the same reason it's more disruptive when you pop in. Exactly, yes. Yeah, exactly. And and speaking of that, you know, we one a couple of things that we've experimented with was having a technical facilitator, so someone or an assistant, so someone who's kind of staying in the main room and handling the breakout rooms so that um the 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 main facilitator can can move around a bit. Yeah. Yeah, because again, what, what I what I tend to do in the face-to-face sessions, and it de- depends on the context, sometimes I stay out of the conversations totally. Sometimes I actually just become um, a participant myself, and I just mm. join the tables myself. And, I, and I'll stay at one table. Um, again, I, I could, if I did have a technical host, then yes, I could, I could do that myself, which, uh, yeah. That's, uh, but you bring up a valid point. There is a lot of juggling, you know, because there people drop out and come back in, and no one's in the main yeah. session. It could be really disorienting. They're not sure where to go. So definitely, it's in fact, what's really nice about it is that sometimes someone does, does drop out or come late, and rather than put them in a room late, which again is going to be disruptive, um, I will sit there and have a one-to-one conversation with them, mm-hmm. um, which is really quite personal and and really quite enjoyable. So there's there's pros and cons. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And so, when when you think about the Knowledge Cafe, what what is what is so effective about it? Or maybe even going back to the first time you ran it, like what was the what was the thing that you realized that oh wow, this is this is different. This is making people um, come together in a different way. One of the principles of my cafe is that anything that gets in the way of the conversation is a bad thing. So when I designed the cafe. You know, in my corporate life, I've been involved in lots of workshops where I felt I was being manipulated all the time. I felt, I felt the facilitators were often trying to control things. And so that was the reason for the principle that, that I, I really wanted nothing to get in the way of the conversation and everybody to have an equal voice as, as far as they could have an equal voice. And so if you compare my knowledge cafe, say with the world cafe, the world cafe has, um, it's, it's similar in many ways to my knowledge cafe, but they, they typically have a host at each table. And when people move tables, the host stays put and the host welcomes the next group and gives them a summary of what was discussed in the previous, in the previous round. Now I, Deliberately didn't want to do anything like that because as soon as you've got a host at a table, even if you tell them not to dominate or control, human nature says that they will. (laughs) So I want everybody around that table or in that breakout room to be absolutely totally equal, to to have have no um, bigger or less responsibilities than anybody else. Um, and, And so that's... That, that's a that's a big that, that for me is a is a big part of it. Um, there was something else I was going to say about not letting things get in the way of the conversation. So I didn't want things like flip charts. I, I I went to a world cafe once where 
I'm, I'm not too sure all, all World Cafes work like this, but this particular one uh, was fun because every table had a flip chart. And most, most of the people in the room hadn't taken part in a, in, a, in a World Cafe before. So we were given a question and we had the flip chart and felt tip pen. And one of the people at my table, he stood up, picked up the fat tip pen, went to the flip chart and said, okay, um, first point. And somebody shouted out, blah, blah, blah. And he wrote it down. And he said, second point. <laughs> and they wrote down the second point. And I thought, this is not a conversation. And then quite simply, when someone shouted out the third point, I said, I'm not too sure I agree with that. <laughs> and, then, and then the conversation started. So, but again, what was happening here was somebody was taking control. The, the, the flip chart gave control to somebody to take control of the conversation and control the conversation. And that's what I didn't want to have in, in the cafe. Um, but that wasn't quite your question. You, 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 I mean, it's, it's all I part love of that it, story, though, because if we, um, it, there's, there's a couple things to unpack. I immediately, as you were talking about, you know, first point, second point, it, it reminded me of this debate around what's the difference between a moderator and a facilitator. Okay. And mm -hmm. I, because whenever people refer to us as moderators or telling, saying we need a moderator, I'm like, well, I immediately think of this person at the flip chart saying first point, second point, <laughs> where yes. I believe a facilitator often will get out of the way. You know, they know when to lean in and when to lean out. And you yeah. talked about the, the control and in the mm -hmm. name of the podcast and the conference is even a little bit playful around this notion <laughs> of control because yes. control can be um, rigid, and it, but it can be loose. The fact that we even decide that we're doing a knowledge cafe means that we're applying some level of control. We're, yes. we're, we're setting the con initial conditions. Yeah. Um, I often don't call myself a facilitator. In fact, I don't think of myself as a facilitator. I call myself a host. Because I'm not trying, I'm not trying to intervene in the conversation. I'm not trying to direct the conversation. I'm not looking for any specific outcome. I'm not trying to um, necessarily um, get certain people to speak up and certain people to speak less. I, I, I clearly would like to see that happen, but I'm I'm doing my damnedest not to not to control. And I often say about the cafe is that I want the conversation to go where the conversation wants to go, not where I want it to go. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting, this is, this is one of the interesting points about the cafe that I've learned, is that I will, even today, I still haven't quite learned, I will spend a long time thinking about the question that I'm going to pose. But it's very rare that people actually answer the question. Most of my cafes are about exploring an issue. It's about making better sense of it and understanding different people's perspectives. You know, I'm, they're not designed to, to come to some specific outcome or come to some specific conclusion. So there's no particular need to keep reminding people of the, of the question and focusing them on the question. And usually after a few minutes, people have forgotten the question and they are talking about what they want to talk about, what's relevant to them. And as I say, it's the conversation <laughs> that, that takes them in a particular direction, often not the individuals and certainly not the facilitator. Makes Amazing. sense. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so I, I want to come back that, that it brings me back to another point that I got really interested in when you were talking about your, your beginnings and, and also 
as I read your bio and looked at your work is there seems to be an, a complexity theory influence. And I'm just oh, curious yes. if that's intentional or if it's uh, more just, I find a oh, lot no. of people stumbling into this stuff just because it works. And so I'm just kind of curious if complexity is part of, as an intentional element in your design. I don't know about in the design of the knowledge cafe, but I'm, I'm very interested in complexity. L let me talk a little bit about complexity. One, working in the KM field from the very early days, one of the biggest influences on me is Dave Snowden, who you may be familiar with in his uh, Kinevin model. He's, he's one of the leading thinkers in the, uh, the complexity field. So, so very early on, I started to see the world <laughs> through, I know with my scientific background, I had a very mechanistic view of the world. And uh, I think it's really, really down to Dave that worked me up to the complexity of the world. Now, what this is touching on is my work on conversational leadership. Because when I started to think five years ago about the importance of conversation in our lives, you know, I, I could see clearly that, that conversation is inherently good. <laughs> it's good. It's good if we can, uh, we can talk with each other rather than fight each other, you know, and learning, learning conversational skills is very important, but I always felt that conversation was a much, much more powerful tool than that. And the thing that dawned on me was that, I mean, really in this last 75 years, since the, since the end of the Second World War, the world has changed out of all recognition. It's a very, very complex world. And it's certainly way, way more complex than the world that we evolved in as hunter-gatherers, you know, sort of, you know, from, a hundred thousand, hundred thousand years ago. And it seemed to me that so many of the problems and issues that we face in the world was, was down to this increasing connectivity and, and you know, increasing complexity that we weren't really suited to, uh, to deal with. And so it, it dawned on me that conversation was the tool that we could use to make better sense of the world. So today, one person, one, one CEO, one president really doesn't have the ability to make sense of what's going on in the world. You know, it's, it's, it's far too complex. Today, there's far too much fake news and disinformation. It's very difficult to know what to believe and what not to believe. And uh, you know, COVID's clearly a, a really good example of that. And so if you want to make sense of what's going on, and of course, the reason you want to make sense of things, if you can make better sense of things, hopefully you're in a stronger position to make better decisions. So to make better sense of a complex world, you need to bring people together, you know, cognitively diverse groups of people together to have conversations around what's going on. Um, and and as I realize and in retrospect that for some degree, that's what I was doing with the cafe. And okay, I wasn't necessarily deliberately bringing together cognitively diverse groups. But what we were doing in terms of trying to make sense of, of issues, it, 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 was, it was kind of sense-making given the complexity of the world. So, so complexity is um, it's almost the driver of, of what I'm doing these days. Incredible. And, and so when you think about um, like maybe what's, what's next or, or where things might be going, what, what kind of surfaces for you? Oh, boy. Um, what I've got into just this last 
few months is thinking and researching how we form our beliefs. And the, it's a, it's again, in itself, it's quite a complex topic. But what I've realized from the psychological research is that we don't form our beliefs based on evidence. Actually, a lot of the time, our beliefs have been set down in our childhood and through our life experiences. Um, so we are, I can't remember who said this, we are, we are not rational creatures, we are rationalizing creatures. We, we, we select the evidence to support our beliefs. And so I'm very, and of course, what's, if, if our beliefs are based on very little evidence, and you know you've you've got the left or the right. You know it's, you know it's got Brexit. You you've got the elections in in America. You've got people fighting each other verbally, if not physically, from, from ignorance. Yes, that you know. Um, I often often talk about say Greta Thunberg, and I say, you know, with all due respect to Greta Thunberg, what does she know about global warming? Diddly squat. She knows nothing about it. Nor do you, nor do I. But we've all got our opinions and we express them. And so, Greta Thunberg and certainly myself and I, I, I hope yourself, we believe that global warming is, is true. We trust the scientific community. It's, it's not that we've read the scientific papers or understood them. We trust the scientific community. Other people, like, say, Donald Trump, doesn't trust, made it very clear, he doesn't trust the scientific community. So it's not about... It's not about um, evidence or knowledge, it's about trust. Mm. And so we need some way of rethinking, revising our individual beliefs. And what I came across just a few weeks ago was a website and a gentleman. The website's called Street Epistemology. Have you, have you come across it? I have not. Oh, you're going to love it. You're going to love this. Absolutely love it. It's called Street, street Epistemology. Uh, the, the guy who's founded it and running it is called Anthony Magna Basako or something. It's, a, it's an unusual name. But if, if you go to YouTube and just Google, just search for Street Epistemology, you will find dozens, if not hundreds, of short conversations that Anthony has with people. Basically, he sets himself up, usually on a university campus. He's um, got a couple of video cameras and microphones and a little clipboard. And he's, he's mainly stopping students um, and saying, hey, have you got five minutes to talk about your beliefs? And he gets them to take a belief and then he very skillfully and very carefully and very gently um, asks them questions about their belief. And what he's trying to do is not get them to change their belief, but get them just simply to think about how that belief was formed. Because so many of our beliefs, we've never really thought hard about. And there's some amazing, amazing conversations. I mean, the, a common one is uh, somebody will say, well, I believe in God. And what he does, the first thing, one of the first things he does, he, he asks them, he says, uh, so on a scale of not to 100, to what degree do you believe in God? And you know, they might say 100 or, or they might say 90. And then he, he goes through his little process of very gently questioning them. And again, he's not judging them. He's not trying to um, uh, give his own point of view. 
He's getting them to talk. He's often reflecting back to them what they're saying. He's just getting to get getting them to draw themselves out, and he's looking for maybe um, uh, inconsistencies, maybe in their logic, and just. He's, in fact, he's not even pointing out the inconsistencies. He's, he, he wants them to see them for, him, for, for themselves. So he gently does that. And at the end, they, it usually goes on longer than five minutes. He then basically says, okay, um, so now on a score from 0 to 100, uh, what's your score now? And, and usually it's lower because most people's beliefs, you know, they feel very strongly about. But when they've talked about them and they've had them gently questioned, they... They notch them down a little, and I haven't, I haven't seen all the videos, but some of them, by the looks of it, there's been a complete, complete about turn. Wow. Some people have started out with, with absolute certainty in their belief, and he's managed to, managed to get them to see that there's no foundation for their belief whatsoever. It, it's, an, it's an amazing sight, and the technique and the way he does it is, is phenomenal. It's, it's well worth taking a look at, and I think we could do with a lot more street epistemologists uh, having those sorts of conversations. Yeah, it strikes me as you know, uh, the curiosity and the uh, maybe the patience that it takes to to peel back those layers because you know, starting that conversation off saying, "Hey, I'd like I'd like to I'd like you to challenge your your belief." <laughs> it's like mm. you know, the, it, I think about it as like a. Well, I once watched this. Um, I was working with a school working with children that were in socioeconomically depressed area of Dallas. And they had this program that was really focused on social emotional learning. And one device they used really just blew me away. It had simplicity and its effectiveness, but it was a thermometer. And whenever a child was having a moment, they would take them to the thermometer and say, where are you on the thermometer? Oh, okay. And the brilliant thing is, think about when a child is, is, you know, throwing a tantrum or having yes. a, having a moment. The the immediate reaction is, you need to stop that. Yeah. Stop behaving that way. But is that that request is not taken into into account that they need to to take a journey mm-hmm. from there to where they need to be. Yeah. It's not flipping yep. a switch. And yep. and yep. I think the Absolutely. thermometer acknowledges that. Because it's like I'm way up here. I need to get down here. There's a transition to make, or mm-hmm. even to go to Snowden's thing. I need to move from one domain to the other, and I have yeah, to go through okay. disorder to get there. Like I can't just yes. flip over, yeah, yeah. right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so when I think about that further, and your street epistemology, yes, your street epistemology. They, he's taking them through that journey rather than asking them to flip that switch to think a different That's way. Right. And yes. I think as facilitators yeah. and meeting participants, we need to be cognizant of that and how we take people in journeys and not just have them flip switches. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. But I think there's a lot of interesting stuff uh, going on in the world. Um, it's, it's going to be interesting this next few, this next few years to see how it all pans out because we're getting a, we're getting far more polarized than than is healthy. I agree, and, uh, and and you know I think the, the the trick is to think about that polarization through a lens of how can we go on a journey with them? How can we have a conversation and and understand where those beliefs comes from? What mindsets they might be in, et cetera, Because. You know, just expecting people to change their minds or just assuming we understand how they think, I think, is a, a very, very counterproductive paradigm. 
Yeah, we, we make a huge number of assumptions about other people, yes. that they're bad people, that they're stupid. Um, when most people are not bad people, they're not stupid. Most people, like I hope you and I, are, you know, are acting in good faith. Mm -hmm. um, they've just got different beliefs and different views and different ways of expressing them. Um, let me just share one other thing with you that just come to mind, which was a little piece of, again, a little piece of magic. Um, one of the things I've often felt strongly about is the, is the word respect. Because I feel you know, to have a good conversation, you need to um, show respect you know, in having that conversation. And I realized quite early on that there was a difference between having respect for somebody, you know, i.e. admiring them, and showing respect for them. And so I can think of can think of plenty of people, many politicians who I've who I don't respect as people. But if I ever met them, I would show respect to them. I would want to have an open conversation with them. And so there's this difference between those two forms of respect. But in writing about that and just sort of googling it and researching it, I found a Jewish term, and the Jewish term is lashon hara. And it means evil tongue. Mm. And in Jewish religious law, if you will, it is a sin to speak Lashon Hara. In other words, it's a sin to say anything derogatory about anybody else. What I quite liked about that, it was putting a nice, very interesting label on it. I think, I think it's, it's, it's Hebrew. But the Jewish law goes a little bit further. It says it is a sin to say anything derogatory about somebody, even when it is true. Mm -hmm. And that was the, <laughs> that was the um, eye-opener, you know, sort of, that, that just popped, popped my mind, even if it's true. And you think, how do you, how do you live in a world where you can't Bad math somebody, even even if it's true, even when you know they've done something bad. And and clearly in the Jewish culture, there's been a lot of discussion over that by the looks of it over over the years. And you know, there are um exceptions, if you like, to the to the rule. Um but I took it on board and I thought, right, I am gonna stop to the degree that it's possible, <laughs> let's put it this way. To the degree that's possible, I'm going to stop speaking Lash and Hara. So whenever I find myself saying something derogatory about somebody, I, I do notice it now. And basically what I say is in my head, is it absolutely necessary <laughs> that I say this? Most of the time it isn't. So I, I, I try to stop saying it. It makes me think about the difference between information, things that are informational and things that are personal and relational. So if mm -hmm. we are, if we judge someone and we, and we attack their character and we say the, these, these things about them, that the, that's personal and relational. But if we yeah. simply state that he stole from the bank, that's different than saying he's a thief, right? And yes, so labeling is, yes. someone yeah. and, and, and attacking someone's character is different than saying, Hey, they did this thing because I think labeling someone and attacking their character is really hard for them to um, to move move forward from, 
Uh, right? Because it said it's yeah, an absolute. Absolutely. It says they are this thing. And so I, you were checking their identity. Yeah. And so that's where I went when you were talking about it is, it is outlawed to do those things. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. well, we can still talk about the fact that it happened and what we're going to do about it, but we don't necessarily need to demonize that person because they did something, right? We can still yeah. hold yeah. their humanity in high regard. I think what's also interesting about National Highway, there's a couple of other things they say is, first of all, it does more harm to you than to the person you're attacking. <laughs> of course. Um, which, is, like, which is interesting. And yes. also, it is, it is a sin to allow somebody else to speak Lashon Hara. If they do, you should point it out to them or you should walk away. And also, it's a sin to think Lashon Hara. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's, it's almost a gold standard. It's, a, it's, it's something that's almost impossible in, in, today, I think, in some ways, to live up to. But it's a, it's a really interesting um, goal, if you like, to work towards as individuals. If, if, we, could, if we could stop you know, all, all, the, all the ad hominem attacks that we make on, on people, you know, especially people you know, who have got different beliefs to us. And we, we, we recognize that most of them are acting in good faith. And you know, what we do need to do is, is sh show respect and mm -hmm. have those conversations that we need to have so we better understand each other. That's... To me, that's the key to all of this. So amazing. Well, I think that brings us to a close. And what a, what an what an amazing place to to end. And in this just acknowledgement that we need to respect the humanity mm. and the people that we're with and the people we encounter, especially when we're doing work. And I think it comes back to the Peter Block quote you shared that we have to put the connection before content. Yeah, absolutely. So. Before we go, I want to just give you an opportunity to share a message to our listeners. What would you like to leave them with? A little while ago, I came across a woman called Patricia Shaw. She was a professor of complexity at uh, Hatfield University. And she was talking about leadership. And she said one of the ways that she thinks about leadership is that a leader initiates conversations that might otherwise not have taken place. A leader initiates conversations that might otherwise not have taken place. And I really like that because it plays very well into my thinking and writing about conversational leadership. And so if I want to leave a message for people, I would say to you, what are the conversations that you should be having that you're not having? Figure that out and go out and have those conversations. Amazing. It's been so great talking with you today, David. And um, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I hope we can stay in touch. I hope we can too. I've, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Douglas. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together, voltagecontrol.com. <laughs>